The following recording may or may not include instances of words being said that the FCC would find me for if their long arm could ever reach. It's Wednesday, August 7th, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The president was in Dayton today asking about the mud hens and if this was where Klinger was from and wondering if it was this Ohio city or its Spanish namesake, which gave the world the expression, holy to Dayton. He also went to El Paso, where he still has not paid his bill. The president failed to offer much reassurance or healing because he can't, because he doesn't, because he won't, because it would be a huge contradiction of everything he has said or stands for. Division is not a byproduct of the Trump strategy. It is the Trump strategy. And all he and his acolytes are hoping to do now is to not set themselves back too embarrassingly while also probing for any scintilla of an opponent overstepping in their minds in order to point to that kind of excess as typical and what we're up against and to rally his faithful around a common enemy. I mean, on Breitbart today, I checked it out. There was this headline, Netflix show Dear White People Depict Trump Supporters as KKK. Great way to keep your eye on the ball, guys. Now, you know, I did hear this one thing, and he said it a couple days ago during his uh, first comments, and I didn't pick it up at the time. And then I heard it again, and it just struck me as notable. Here it is. Mental illness and hatred pulls the trigger, not the gun. It's sometimes hard and often very not worth it to point out the inanities and inaccuracies and illogic of this president, and such an old, tired argument that the problem isn't guns, it's people old argument, tired argument. But in making this argument a little new, Trump did something very unusual and very weird. So he focused on a part of the gun, and it's actually the middle part of the sequence of firing a gun. Hate pulled the trigger. Well, I mean, hate and mental illness didn't invent the gun. Hate didn't legalize the gun. Hate didn't cast the gun out of iron. Hate didn't load, fire, and unload the cartridge of the gun. Hate didn't propel the round down the barrel of the gun. But it's the trigger, that's the part that's susceptible to hate and mental illness. He's holding up a mechanism necessary to the firing of the gun to argue it's not about the gun. Hate and mental illness, by the way, didn't literally pull the trigger. They are a mental condition and an emotion. It is not literally true that they pulled the trigger. It is literally true that the gun is literally a gun. I've said this before, but this really makes it stark. This general argument is not an argument against banning guns, not really. It's an argument against banning anything. It's just an argument against banning. If humans are going to use a thing wrong, let's not blame the thing. And yet we do blame things, things without agency, things that aren't mentally ill or full of hate because we know they can hurt us, or they are dangerous, or because hate and mental illness is a human condition, when combined with that human condition, these things can cause problems. Hate pulled the trigger? No. Without the gun, you know, which is the part around and attached to the trigger, all hate would do is be angry, walk around, maybe wear a MAGA hat. On the show today, the spiel is the definitive counterargument to the idea that the assault weapons ban of 94 to 04 didn't work. It did work, but only to save a lot of lives. But first, 
A great strategy debate is roiling the Democratic Party. What will a winning 2020 electorate look like? Will it be all those disaffected white people, even more disaffected than they were in 2016, just coming back to the Democrats? Or will it be scores of black voters and maybe all those former Jill Stein voters going to the polls? Never mind those cranky blue collar types. I've got an answer for you. Jeffrey Skelly of 538 has looked at the issue extensively and he came to a conclusion. Now, there's a fairly compelling case, and we'll get into this too, that I'm just asking the wrong question. But I'm not going to do this to you. We'll acknowledge we're maybe asking the wrong question. But on the right question, this question that I'm asking, we have an answer. Obama coalition versus Obama to Trump voters. Who holds the key? Jeffrey Skelly knows. If you listen to the show, you know I have my obsessions, among them plastic straws, bears, flags, maybe a little Marianne Williamson. But here is my, I would say this is my 2020 electoral strategy obsession. What is the better strategy for a Democrat? And it's often posed as a choice. And then the right answer is something like, oh, a little bit of both. But I'll give you the choice in stark terms. One, what the Democrats should try to do is to reverse as best they can those Obama to Trump voters to go out there and make appeals to people who have voted Democrat in the past, then voted for Trump. Maybe you could win them back. The other side of that argument is forget that. That's pandering. It won't work. They're too far gone, whatever the reasons. What we need to do is essentially rebuild the Obama coalition, which is to say, turn out more very liberal people, African-Americans, people of color. I will acknowledge there are flaws in the absolute presentations of each strategy, but I think it's a legitimate question. And here to discuss this is Jeffrey Skelly. He's the elections analyst or an elections analyst, but chief among elections analysts at 538, which is the place for elections analysis. And he's also studied this and he did it the past when he was with uh, the University of Virginia's voter. What was it, Jeffrey? Center for Politics. Center for Politics. So Jeffrey Skelly joins me now. And Jeffrey, I don't know if I should just take it off the table or allow you to say... If I ask, what should Democrats do, win back those Obama-Trump voters or turn out the Obama coalition, I'll give you the chance to say, well, they should do both. So go ahead. Give me your version of it. Definitely makes sense to do both. Uh, I will I will go ahead and give <laughs> you the, the do both aspect, which is if you look back at just the midterm election, mm-hmm. uh, where did Democrats make a lot of gains? Well, they made a lot of gains in the suburbs, uh, but they actually did win back a lot of votes in rural areas, too. So if you're thinking about an electoral college map and how do you best win a statewide election uh, so if you're thinking about Pennsylvania, you know, not a lot of votes there that made the difference. Um, but maybe if black turnout had been a little higher in Philly, you win. But if Trump doesn't win by just crushing margins in right. the rest of the state, Clinton wins Pennsylvania. He, he actually did pretty well in point of fact, right? He did pretty well in Philly. Michigan and Detroit is maybe an even better example because or, or Milwaukee and Wisconsin. Great examples. Yeah. I mean, I, I think actually at the end of the day, Clinton held up. Obama's numbers closer in Philly than she did in Wayne County, yes. which is Detroit or Milwaukee. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you can look at black turnout in those three major metropolitan areas as being a factor, but also the fact that 
Clinton lost a lot of white voters who voted for Obama. Right. So if she could have done both or if the next Democrat could do both, obviously you'll be better. But this to me gets at the, hey, we're the GM of a football team. Should we concentrate on offense or defense? And if you hire a consultant, he says, oh, to get better on both, you might fire the guy. But if you look at the many million people, I think one in eight voters who voted for Obama voted for Trump, but you know the numbers. It just seems to me that it's that part of it to try to convince the people who were Obama voters, then voted for Trump to come back to the Democrats. So many more people at stake than actual people who, you know, stayed home, maybe people who are African-Americans who stayed home because they were unexcited about the politics, the policies of the Democrat. But what do you know about those raw numbers? Well, sure. Actually, uh, if you think even about this, the 2018 midterm election, uh, Catalyst did this great study of where things had been moving uh, and comparing the 2016 election to 2018. And, you know, they found that more than just new voters showing up, uh, Democratic gains largely came from people who had flipped, uh, who had voted for Trump in 2016 and then voted for their Democratic congressional candidates. So I think that does speak to the fact that there are a lot of gains to be made. I mean, when I did this estimate back after the 2016 election of just how many Obama-Trump voters were there, uh, depending on the source, whether it was like the American National Election Study or the CCES or the exit polls. I mean, there are all these things. Yeah, the exit polls, come on. Yeah, well, the exit polls only for sort of, uh, you know— People are familiar with the exit yes. polls, so it's a place to start. And data point, take them, pull as them they, in. Take it for what they're um, worth. Right. And then also we, the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia, where I had worked at the time, had done a poll on uh, specifically looking at people who backed Trump and had asked, how you know, how many of you voted for, for Obama? And, of course, memory is fallible. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you can't, can't bet on people right. exactly remembering. So tell me why I'm wrong to look at this as one strategy says, let's get those 750,000 voters, and the other strategy says, let's go after the 5 million. How could you not say that let's go after the 5 million is a better strategy? I mean, I tend to agree with you. I mean, I think if you look at the three states that the Democrats narrowly lost in the 2016 presidential election, I mean, you're talking about 77,000 votes, margins under one percentage point. I mean, if you're Doing that and comparing it to, say, like the Sunbelt strategy, you know, win Georgia, win North Carolina, win Arizona, the margins you have to make up there yes. are a lot larger, yes. you know, three, four, five percentage points. And yes. so if you're thinking about just fundamentally winning, I do think that a focus on winning back some of those voters has to be a part of your strategy. In fact, maybe even the biggest part. Yes. Um, if but, it's an either or. But. but I guess the question is, there are also a lot of new voters have come into the electorate. The country is more diverse than ever. You know, I, I think you could make a case that certain candidates might be able to, to turn out voters who did stay home. And maybe there's a lot more than 750,000 if you add in new voters who've come into the electorate. But then, of course, that gets into the question of turning out young voters. and. Right. Uh, yeah, that gets harder. It's, it's easier to convince a voter who's voted to vote than a voter who hasn't to vote. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I think that's true. It does seem to me that people who have an expertise on or a strong opinion and maybe some expertise on what policies are best, when they're the same people who are also giving you advice on what electoral strategy is best, there's always a dovetailing. And so Joanne Reed and Cornell Belcher and uh, Van Williams will always say – 
exciting, progressive, as progressive as you could get, which happens to align with my policies, is also the right electoral policy. And a guy like Mike Pesca, who is a self-identified moderate, though I don't love the word, will say, no, 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 no. I mean, I'm not against that, but it really does seem that trying to woo the Obama-Trump voters has a role. I don't know. Do you know of anyone who's, who's really atheistic or agnostic on one of those two uh, rubrics and has a strong opinion on the other one. I mean, what or in your insight, what are we to do with the fact that there is so often a dovetailing of electoral strategy and policy prescriptions? Well, you're you're right. I mean, there's self-interest there in terms of how people are going to present what is best. And so someone who's supporting Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren is going to tell you, well, we need to just go all in. Right. Uh, but I do think historically and you know, you can you can question how much the history matters now because the country's more polarized than it's really ever been, or at least arguably in you know since like Reconstruction or something. Yeah. Uh, historically, candidates closer to the middle have of the electorate. So maybe the electorate's a little bit more liberal. Maybe it's a bit more conservative. But in tor- closer to the middle of wherever the electorate spans, mm-hmm. have tended to do better. Uh, and there actually is a lot of evidence for that. And if you look historically. It, cases where someone was maybe a little out there or was presented as such. Someone like George McGovern gets presented that way. You know, he gets blown out. But of course, that was a long time ago. And now the country is really polarized in a way it wasn't nearly as much back then in like 1972. And so I I do think that there, you know, when, when progressives make the case that you need to go all in because you need to win over Democratic voters, I mean, I don't know if... It's not necessarily that they are absolutely right on that. It's just that they might not be able to be as wrong because Democrats are going to vote for the Democrat regardless. And so Mm -hmm. if the Democrats nominate a Democrat, which they will do, uh, and that Democrat happens to be very progressive, uh, most of the Democrats are going to come along for the ride. I mean, you're going to win 90%. Okay, so this gives us, this gets us to, I think everything informs this assumption, which is depending on your strategy, you're going to nominate, you're going to want to nominate a certain candidate who has certain policies or certain presentation that maximizes on that strategy, maximizes excitement, which... Uh, we, I guess, say is progressive or maximizes uh, the appeal to the calm moderates, which is someone more centrist. But is any of that actually true? Again, this, I think, gets into the, the thing at the start where you said, well, let's just go ahead and acknowledge that both, <laughs> you're doing both, yeah. is important, sort of regardless of what your target audience is. You want to get some of that Obama coalition to show back up and you want to get some of the, and those non-college white voters were part of the Obama coalition. You want to get some of them to show up, even if they voted for Trump last time, and get them to, to change their vote like they did during the 2018 midterm election, which, by the way, did see the highest midterm electorate turnout since women were able to start voting, you know? Like, it's, it's <laughs> there, there's been no midterm election like it in terms of turnout. So, I, I mean, I, I think it, it gets back to your point that both is sort of the answer and I don't know what the the right answer is for Democrats. I mean, I think they're going to be excited about their candidate in some ways, regardless of whichever person it is, because yeah. President Trump is there as an exciting force for Democrats. But still, if you're talking about the fine margins in some of these states and thinking about what's going to appeal best in, I don't know, Bucks County, Pennsylvania or something, the Philly suburbs, um, you know, that or, or uh, Macomb County, everybody's favorite, Reagan Democrats outside of Detroit. You know, I I don't know what the best answer is for them because I think a lot of it will come down to how the candidate 
sort of contrast themselves with President Trump and also how President Trump goes about trying to define them. And, you know, that that's sort of an X factor that you can't, you just don't know exactly how that's going to play. If, as you're saying, and as I'm agreeing, that whoever the Democrat is will, ha- will spark the negative partisanship and uh, capitalize on the partisanship and, you know, run a campaign that is cognizant of all these issues— is it then, does it then follow that it's really not a good argument for any moderate to criticize a plan like let us decriminalize the border or let us quickly go to let's abolish private insurance? It's just not a good criticism because you're saying no matter what policies the Democrat endorses, those policies pretty much aren't coming back to hurt the Democrat. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there there is some truth to it that no matter what policies the eventual nominee endorses, President Trump is going to say that the Democrat is for open borders. That is or, true. Or, you know, that but sort if of the thing. Democrat is for open borders, maybe two or three percent of the people or 74,000 people in three states will be convinced. Maybe they're more convinced by the truth than a lie. He'll call every Democrat a socialist. But if Bernie, a socialist, is yeah. the candidate, maybe that criticism will go a little further. Oh, no, th- I think you're right. And and that's where you get into sort of, you know, these different shades of blue, if you will. Uh-huh. Uh, and how much do they actually sort of feed into the narrative that President Trump will be presenting uh, about them? And we saw during like the 2018 midterm, President Trump was saying there was this crisis at the border and there, you know, there's this caravan coming. And it was just nonstop yeah. in the lead up to the midterm. And it I don't think there's any evidence that it helped him. And. That might just have been the midterm effect, you know? The president is what people are voting about in a midterm election. There isn't a, another presidential candidate, you know, that he's facing. And a lot of voters just weren't as tuned in. And there's traditionally the out party is more motivated to show up. And you see sort of what happened in the midterm election. So I think people have to be careful. Like yes. we, I was mentioning earlier, you know, there's some evidence that I think Democrats should should look at from the midterm election mm-hmm. uh, in terms of winning back some of those voters uh, that voted for Trump. But at the same time, the midterm effect, you know, maybe they're always going to vote for Trump again, but they wanted to balance it out because they do have some concerns about him. So they voted for the Democrat in their House race. So I guess getting sort of trying to get get back to it, it's like I do think that if the public option idea is polling well and Medicare for all or the aspect of Medicare for all that's going to get talked about, which is like taking away private insurance, Mm -hmm. is not polling well. Yes, there could be drawbacks to nominating somebody who favors the elimination of private insurance versus someone who says, I'm for a public option, which polls pretty decently. I, I, I Trying to figure out and fine-tune exactly how much that is is difficult to say. Okay, and this is, but this is important. Do you think then that that difference that is plausible directly goes to the, where, where our discussion started? Is it better to excite the base who will supposedly be excited by eliminating private insurance? Or is it more important to try to win back those Obama-Trump voters who will be turned off by it? Yeah, I think the base is going to largely come with the Democratic nominee regardless. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a good case to be made that winning back those voters is the easiest path to winning, especially given the makeup of the three states that were closest in the last presidential election, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And if you're sort of trying to, I mean, 
the name of the game is 270 electoral votes. Mm-hmm. And those were extremely fine margins in those states. And I do wonder, but this, this is a little tangential, but I wonder about how much more Trump can build on the margins he already produced in some areas of those states. So I think for Democrats, if they can win back some of those voters, it's going to be difficult, I think, for Trump to find other ones, you know, maybe ones that didn't vote. Yeah, uh, because, you know, it's not a lot of those areas are not growing. In fact, they're shrinking population wise. And so if you can win a few of them back, you might be guaranteeing yourself victory because it will be difficult for Trump to find a way to win at that point. Jeffrey Skelly is elections analyst for 538. He provided us with some clarity, but then injected some ambivalence. But, you know, I think in 2019, ambivalence is the new clarity. Jeffrey, great to meet you. Great to talk to you. Hey, thanks for having me. And now, the spiel. There is a theme to all the pieces of legislation and regulation proposed in the wake of El Paso and Dayton, which is, the more effective the measure, the less a chance it has of passing. Red flag laws are better than no red flag laws, but not exactly sure if they're going to do a lot. Connecticut, which gets an A from the Giffords Law Center to prevent gun violence, had a red flag law on the books at the time of the Sandy Hook shooting. Problem is someone has to raise the flag and a number of mass shooters wouldn't be disqualified under red flag laws from owning a gun. For instance, there's little chance that the Las Vegas shooter would have been denied guns even though he had a family history of psychopathy because the elements of the father don't run into the son, especially with the Second Amendment, to run interference. A Cory Booker-style national gun licensing regimen would be really effective and pretty much impossible. A registration regimen would be even better. No candidates are even proposing that. New York City has one. New York City is much safer than a randomly chosen place in the United States. But weirdly, rather than being the envy of gun-loving America, gun lovers look at my safe city with loathing. Odd. All of these new proposals have another thing in common. They're not new. Versions were proposed after Sandy Hook and Parkland and Gilroy and San Bernardino into the Tree of Life and Thousand Oaks, etc., We're the only nation that has to, et cetera, our mass shootings. If every double space period in an ellipsis of the et cetera were the body of a victim killed in every mass slaughter since 1982, those periods would take up 12 full lines of text in a 12-point font, dot, 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 900-something times. It seems high, but it's actually a very conservative estimate because I'm going off the Mother Jones database of mass killings since 82, This data set, I believe, comes closest to accurately describing the horror of mass killings that we've experienced since then. It excludes any mass killing with fewer than three victims other than the shooter since 2013. And before 2013, you needed four victims because there was a change in federal law of how they define mass shootings and investigated mass shootings. So what this means, this extremely conservative definition of mass shooting means is it corresponds to our conception of mass killings. Gang killings are excluded. Home invasions are excluded. 
The angry father slaughtering his own family is excluded. Massive shootouts with police after the commission of a crime. Doesn't count those. These are the mass shootings of hashtag and marches on the state house and citywide vigils and international attention and the slogan never again and the slogan city where it happens strong and the ones that keep prompting the onion headline. No way to prevent this says only nation where this regularly happens. In a way, it's callous to exclude all the other victims. They deserve our sympathy. They deserve our laws. In some cities, did I mention New York? They're getting our laws, not perfectly, but there are proven methods to combat shootings that don't fall into the category of mass slaughter that I'm talking about. Mass slaughters of mostly strangers in places outside the home. But I am here to tell you there is a way to combat that problem too. Not only is there a way, but it's been tried and it worked. Not perfectly, but enough so that if it were a medicine or a proposed cure to a disease, we would prescribe it. It would lessen symptoms. It would make the pain a bit more manageable. And I'm convinced it would save lives. It's the assault weapons ban. From 94 to 04, we had a ban on assault weapons defined by grip and capacity. It worked. It helped. We are told it did not. But before we get to the fact that it did help to partly alleviate the problem, let us review the conventional wisdom by people of goodwill on both sides of the issue. First, I'll play Peter Wenner, a Reagan, Bush, and Bush administration official, three Republican administrations. He was interviewed on the Bulwark podcast two days ago. There's an enormous amount of energy uh, and intensity spent debating issues that at best will have the most marginal effect, whether we're talking about waiting periods or, you know, the size of magazines or mental health uh, background checks and, and all of the rest. And, and there have been studies done by this, by the CDC and, and others, uh, assault weapons bans during the Clinton years. They didn't have an effect. Next, here's vice journalist Harry Cheadle. On Slate's What Next podcast, same day. The best evidence that we have about the assault weapons ban is that it reduced the number of mass shooting events somewhat. Not by a ton, but it did have an effect. This is the conventional wisdom. It was echoed by NBC and the NRA. Here's the NRA. This is Wayne LaPierre. Independent studies, including one from the Clinton Justice Department proved that it had no impact on lowering crime. And here's Pete Williams of NBC. I think there's a widespread feeling that the assault weapons ban that that existed for 10 years uh, during the Clinton administration that started was ineffective for this reason. It listed a number of features that if weapons had, they couldn't be sold as assault weapons bans. So (laughs) uh, manufacturers simply redesigned their guns. So that last part, you hear that the ban could be defeated. Yes, I suppose a gun manufacturer could make different handles or stocks to get around the regulation, but... If you wanted the regulation to work, you would invent an enforceable law. For instance, experts tell me you could define gun legality by something like rounds fired per minute, and then changes in the grip wouldn't matter. But in general, people argue that the ban was ineffective, and the Justice Department said so, and university studies said so, because it didn't bring gun violence down in total. That is true, but I'm talking about the ban for this specific type of mass slaughter. When this supposedly ineffective ban was in effect, it brought down the numbers of mass slaughters. The number of victims were far, far less. It was greatly effective in reducing the number of people killed in mass shootings. During the ban, there was one mass shooting with more than 10 people dead. 
that was Columbine. A characteristic was that the shooters were wandering through the school for almost an hour before the police even entered. No one knew what to do. Now we're used to it, sadly. Since the ban expired, there have been 13 such mass shootings of 10 or more. Of the 13, eight were carried out with semi-automatic rifles. If you want to take the number of deadly shootings with eight or more victims, there were two additional mass slaughters during the ban and seven afterwards. All right. Writing in the LA Times last year, John Stokes had an op-ed that was titled, The Assault Weapons Ban Didn't Work, A New Version Won't Either. Stokes is a co-founder of the tech site Ars Technica. He also runs Firearm Blog. His argument is based in the overall drop of crime, not on the slaughters I'm talking about and you're talking about and the country is talking about today. Stokes also points out that if you count the mass slaughters that had four or more victims during the ban, compare that to the number of mass slaughters with four or more victims after the ban, there's no discernible difference. He uses that as a criticism of the assault weapons ban. It is, in fact, a justification. Of course, if you have a gun and it's loaded and you aim it at a person and fire it, that person very well could die. But when the gun allows you to shoot fewer rounds in a shorter period of time, where the muzzle velocity of the rounds exiting the gun is lower, where it causes less cavitation, which is ripping apart the bodily tissue after impact, when that happens the body toll goes down. The reason there doesn't seem to be a difference during the assault weapon ban versus after when you look at deaths of four people instead of deaths of eight to 10 could very well be that the ban itself reduced individual death tolls from what would have been eight or what would have been 10 to four. There are good arguments against the weapons ban as a total panacea. Of course it wasn't. And maybe there's even good faith arguments that if indeed proponents of the assault weapons ban claimed that it would greatly reduce overall gun murders, they were exaggerating. I'm not sure their proponents did. But if what we want to do is pass a law to reduce exactly the types of killings that we want to reduce, it seems insane to continue to describe the assault weapons ban as a failure. Not as insane as everything else in the gun debate, but insane enough to have a proven way to ameliorate a horrible problem and yet to pretend it didn't work at all. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. One wants to turn out the bass. The other wants to pump up the jams. It's an intricate argument. Today on What Next, they start a three-part series on Ferguson and Michael Brown, part one, Joel Anderson's reporting experience. The gist. The oldest living person born in America is Thelma Sutcliffe, born 1906, or as I call her, the entire remaining Herbert Hoover Coalition. Umpuru depuru dupuru, and thanks for listening.